We're going to go ahead and read the uh, 20th Psalm. This is to the chief musician. It's a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. And our sermon today is uh, Exodus 8. It's verses 1 through 7. Uh, the doctor over here, when they came in, uh, I said, this is part one. And he says, they had a little discussion last night. I guess Mrs. Bridges asked, is it going to be all 15 verses today? And apparently not. We got part one, the plague of frogs. And uh, so Exodus chapter eight, uh, let's see here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and to the house of your servants, on your people, into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers and over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. The second plague of frogs is what we're going to be looking at this week and next week. It's filled with interesting tidbits from the Hebrew, and we'll try to fit in every one of them that we can. But it's filled with marked rebellion of the leader of Egypt as well. He was given an advanced warning of what was ahead, and he chose to refuse to listen. When the frogs come, they will infest everything, even down to the kneading troughs where bread is made. The same is true for later in Israel's history. God warned Pharaoh in advance that the very place where their bread was made would be defiled by this curse. Knowing this to be true because they had actually witnessed it, the Israelites were warned that their own kneading troughs would be cursed if they did not pay heed to the word of the Lord. They did not, and God's judgment came upon them. Our text verse today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is verses 15 and 17. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then down in verse 17, it says, Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. The word kneading bowl or kneading trough is used only four times in the entire Bible. Just four. It is used twice in the Exodus account and twice in Deuteronomy. Once in the promise of blessing for obedience and once in the promise of curse for disobedience. In Egypt, the kneading troughs of the Egyptians were cursed, but the kneading troughs of the Israelites were spared. It was to be a sign and a warning to them. 
The two times in Deuteronomy let them know that this is true. Oh, how good it would be for God's people to read the words of the Bible and to pay heed to them if we would only humble ourselves and be obedient to his superior word. The way we do that is to read it, to study it, to cherish it, and then to apply it to our lives. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have uh, three thoughts for you today. The first is, let my people go that they may serve me. This verses one through four. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses. The last verse of chapter seven said, and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. This is generally agreed to be tied to the time that the waters were as blood, not specifically the time between the first and second plagues. However long the time was between these plagues is not said, but the Lord now again speaks to Moses his words of instruction. The second plague is coming, but before it does, he will give Pharaoh an opportunity to be released from it by heeding his word. However, we will see that Pharaoh won't do so. The Lord knew this in advance, and so it's a good time to stop and to contemplate the natural nature of these plagues, even if they're of divine origin. In other words, at least some of these plagues can logically be tied one to another as the result of the first plague, that of blood. The river which turned to blood will naturally lead to the second plague of frogs. The second of frogs will naturally lead to the third plague of lice, etc. Though directed by God, he is using natural and normally occurring means to effect his desired outcome. Now, if this is so, and I believe it is, then it still shows us a few things. First, the miraculous nature of the plagues is not diminished at all. The miracle of them is that Moses is able to pinpoint the moment that the plagues would start or cease. As soon as Aaron stretched out his staff, thus initiating the cycle, the plague of blood began. This will be the same for the starting of each of the plagues and for the ending of some of them as well. Moses even allows Pharaoh to choose the set time when the plague of the frogs is going to cease. Second, even if the plagues follow naturally one after another, and were absolutely certain to happen, whether Pharaoh yielded or not, then it means that the Lord knew in advance that Pharaoh would harden his heart. He also knew when that would happen, and he knew when to instruct Moses concerning the next plague to come. Regardless as to whether any of the plagues stem logically from a previous plague or not, the miracle of those plagues remains because of God's advanced knowledge of every detail that would come about in the unfolding of them. The time for the second plague has arrived, and so the Lord now speaks to Moses. Verse 1 going on, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. This is the standard demand that is made time and time and time again throughout the unfolding drama. Let my people go. It was made in chapter 5. It was made in chapter 7. It is made twice in this chapter, and it will be made twice in chapter 9, and once again in chapter 10 as well. Each time the Lord states this, he includes a reason. Once it was to hold a feast to him in the wilderness. Once it was to sacrifice to him. And six times, as in this verse, it is said, so that they may serve him. Though it is a demand, it is still a merciful offer because in the next verse, he will explain the consequences if his request is not granted. The implication is that if he obeys, then there will be no negative consequences. If he doesn't, then there will be. 
but the choice is left up to Pharaoh. This is how the Lord works. He speaks out his word, and then he allows those who hear it to either receive it or to reject it. In Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, he offered prosperity and blessing to Israel if they simply obeyed his laws. And in the same chapters, he notes the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed. And he does the same thing for us in the New Testament. His word is an offering of peace to those who hear it and to those who obey it. But it is an assurance of destruction of those who refuse to listen. And this is how he expected his people to act as well. Israel was told to act this way towards the surrounding nations whom they encountered. See how the pattern of speaking to Pharaoh fits with his directions to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20. It says, when you go near a city to fight against it, then offer, uh, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace, now think of the Lord giving us his word. He's telling Israel to act the same way towards the people around them. Uh, if they uh, accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all of the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and to serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Think of us in this nation warring against God right now, okay? We're going to be besieged one of these days. It's coming. It's coming. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male with it in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Throughout the Bible, in such an instance, just like the one here between Moses and Pharaoh, the people of a land suffer or are blessed because of the decisions of the leader. When the leader accepts such an offer of peace, there is peace. When he refuses it, everyone alike suffers. And this is something that every person here needs to remember as well. There is no reason to assume that God works any differently today. For the nation who elects a godly leader, blessing can be expected. For those who elect people like we have in office right now, we can only expect judgment to come and that with a strong and punishing hand. Pharaoh will continue to learn this lesson and we will learn it soon. I feel that in my bones. Verse two, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. An offer of mercy has been made and the results of the refusal are now stated. Pharaoh's choice will determine the result. As I said earlier, the plague of frogs is most probably a naturally occurring logical result of the first plague of blood. The river died, including all of the fish that were in it, and the result is an explosion of frogs. Because there was nothing to gobble up the tadpoles, the inevitable result is for frogs to multiply in an amazingly immense fashion. Despite the inevitable nature of the plague, though, the offer is still made to Pharaoh, thus showing the Lord's pre-existing knowledge of his hardened heart. Knowing that a refusal would come from Pharaoh doesn't in any way demonstrate any wrongdoing in the Lord, nor does his knowing that we will refuse to obey his word demonstrate any wrongdoing towards us. Because you hear that a lot in society today. How dare God judge me? Well, he's given us his word, and it shows no wrongdoing in him to do so. We, like Pharaoh, are accountable for our actions toward his commands. Pharaoh is now given his choice, though. If he refuses to let Israel go, the land will be smitten with frogs. And in fact, the land will be smitten, just as the Lord already knows. He said as much already when he told this to Moses back in chapter 7. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So he tells us the reason why this is happening. And it also shows us his advanced knowledge of what Pharaoh would do. Knowing in advance the heart of Pharaoh, all of the land of Egypt will suffer. In this verse, the term territory is the word gebul. It properly means borders. In other words, the land within the borders is what will be infested. Wherever people are under his domain, they will be plagued with frogs. The word for frogs here, or frog, is sephardea. In the plural, it's sephardeim. It's a word which is only used in connection with this plague and nowhere else in the Bible. It's used 11 times in this chapter and twice in the Psalms referring to this chapter and nowhere else. It comes from an unused word meaning a swamp or a marsh leaper and hence it indicates a frog. It is believed that the species of frog which would have come from this plague is known as Rana Mosaica. It's a large frog which apparently resembles a toad and it actually crawls more than it leaps. What is probably one of the most dreadful aspects of this particular frog is that it croaks perpetually. This plague is actually an attack on the false gods of Egypt because they regard the frog as a symbol of power and of procreation. Their goddess, they had a goddess named Heket, was represented as having a frog's head. And because they were considered sacred, no one could voluntarily kill any of these frogs. But even the involuntary killing of a supposedly divine animal could lead to punishment, including death. Therefore, such a plague would be a burden almost beyond imagination. Every step would have to be taken with care as they trudged through a sea of croaking noise. This is, however, the natural result of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Any time that we place the creation or any part of it above him, the inevitable result will be the upheaval of the natural order of things. We talked about that in the Prophecy Update with California. This is how the world works. Another example is when a state forbids the hunting of deer because of environmental wackos, they think it's wrong, then the natural order gets upset. Suddenly deer take over and they become an enormous problem on numerous levels. Not only do they become a physical nuisance by impacting vegetation and soils and other environmental features, they also become a health hazard because eventually the ticks and the other parasites that they carry around with them cause disease to spread. Both humans and livestock can be at risk because of increased numbers of them. Highways can have a significant number of increase in accidents and death and so on. One thing leads to another, and there are always consequences for our dismissal of the Creator as we interact with his creation. This second verse of chapter 8 is one of warning against such things. But by the time we reach verse 6, the warning will have become a reality. Pharaoh's hard heart will see his false god of procreation become a life force which is procreated into a state of destruction. Verse 3, so the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly. The river which the Egyptians adored and worship, giving it undue divine honors, will be the source of their coming agony. The same river which had died from the plague of blood will come alive with a most horrendous plague. The frog embryos survived through that first plague. 
but the predators of those embryos didn't survive. Frogs and other amphibians normally lay an immense number of eggs. This is done in order to counter the large number of predators that eat frog spawn and tadpoles. It's normally considered that at best, at best, not more than one in 50 of the eggs that are laid in a pond will actually make it to becoming a frog. All of the rest are normally eaten by predators such as fish and the like, but they all died. It was seen in the first plague that all of those natural predators died. Not only would one of many survive, almost all of them would. The availability of food and the lack of predators would render the birth rate at close to 100%. The balance of nature had been upset, and now there would be a reaction to that upset state. Life which would otherwise eyes have been measured through God's use of natural forces was to be unleashed in an almost violent upheaval. The frogs will come out in such a large fashion that it's going to appear that the river is literally going to vomit them out. And frogs, like all of life, will look for a little space to exist and to prosper. And because the banks of the river couldn't hold them all, they would have to find other places to relax and croak the hours away. Verse 3 continues, Which shall go up and come into your house... Frogs generally stay in wet areas. They look for places that have reeds or grass. This is where the tasty frog treats would live. But the sheer volume of frogs would force them to separate according to the sound of the croak. With every near croak, they would look to move a hop or two further away. As people stepped around them, trying not to squish their little gods, the frogs would continue to move along. Houses which were previously devoid of frogs would be filled with them as they looked for their own space to fill. The lack of the croak would tell them, hey, there's free space for me to move in. But the sheer numbers of them would mean that many would move in at the same time. Because all human life in Egypt is very close to the Nile or its branches, which the Nile flows into, there would be a mingling of the homes of the Egyptians with the millions and millions of frogs that are looking for their own pad to croak away the time. And so Pharaoh is told in advance that these noisy little gods would come even bebetecha into your house. And Pharaoh's house may actually have had it worse off than many of them because he surely would have lived close to the Nile River so that his eyes could rest upon its supposedly divine waters. But the sight his eyes would soon behold would turn horrifying to him. His own home would become a den of loathsome and indescribably noisy little gods that he would learn to hate rather than revere. Verse 3 continues, Into your bedroom, Ubachadar mishchavecha. Into your room of bedding is what it says, namely your chamber, the very place where you found solace, intimacy with another, or rest will now become a place of constant commotion, a complete lack of intimacy, and a place where rest would be utterly impossible. Because you have denied my people rest, you will be denied your rest. The sheer number of the frogs would mean that stepping like a man would be exchanged for sliding the feet like a snake. Even in the spot of what was normally the greatest ease would be the mental turmoil of noise and personal stress. Verse 3 continues, On your bed, ve'al mi tatecha, and yes, even on your bed, be it a mat strewn out on the floor or a divan or a couch which was raised up above the floor, your little frog gods will find you and torment you. Not only would the noise be continuous as they croak the hours away incessantly, but to merely roll over while you're sleeping could cause the wrath of the frog god to descend on you. 
there would be terror in sleeping, terror in working, terror in any activity because of the possibility of squishing one's hope of eternal bliss and being consigned instead to eternal pain, such as the life of one who worships the creation. Knocking on wood will quickly lose its appeal for the one whose knuckles fill with splinters when they realize the consequences of their actions. Verse 3 continues, Into the houses of your servants, Ubebet Abadecha, I have asked that you allow Israel to come into the wilderness to serve me. If you deny this request, your servants will suffer the affliction of the plague. They will become so overcome with the frogs that they will not be able to serve you. Should you choose to deny me what I request, I will ensure that you are denied your service. When it becomes known that they have suffered because of you, their own hearts will harden towards you, just as your heart has hardened towards me. It is an indication of divine reciprocity, and it will not be limited to Pharaoh's servants. Verse 3 goes on, on your people, ube amecha. Yes, the people in your kingdom will suffer the consequences of your denying to let my people go. I have asked you for their release, but if they are to continue to suffer under you, then your people will suffer under my hand. Verse 3 continues, Into your ovens, ube tanurecha. These ovens, or tanur, are basically small fire pots or even portable earthenware furnaces. After bread was kneaded, it would be flattened out into a circular shape and hand-pressed against the inside of the oven. It would bake while adhering to the wall and then be removed and ready to enjoy. And this type of oven is actually still used in parts of the world today. The same word for them is used to describe, believe it or not, the smoking oven, which represented the presence of God in the vision of Abraham, which he beheld in Genesis 15 when the covenant was made with him. In Isaiah and in Malachi, this oven represents divine judgment. In Lamentations, it represents destructive famine. The parallels to this account then are obvious. God's presence would be felt through the plague. The ovens being filled with frogs couldn't be used to make bread, thus it is a metaphor for his divine judgment. And this judgment would then result in hunger because of the lack of bread. Pharaoh would have to consider all of this before making his decision to accept or to reject the demand of Jehovah. Verse 3 continues, And into your kneading bowls, Ube misharu techa, what is worse than not being able to eat bread from the ovens is that even the kneading bowls would be defiled. The misharet was a small household vessel of wood and shaped like a trough where flour would be mixed with water. Normally, there would be a piece of already fermented dough left there from the previous day as well. And what they do is they take that piece of fermented dough and they'd mix it in and that fermenting, the yeast, would spread to the entire new batch of dough. These same bowls will be mentioned again in Exodus chapter 12 as the people prepare to leave Egypt. They were small enough to be wrapped in a person's clothing and carried right on their shoulder. In the case of the plague, the slimy frogs would even get into these most personal of household appliances. It would be like opening up your fridge and finding frogs in there and opening up your microwave and seeing that you'd nuked a frog or maybe a toaster and you push it down and out comes a frog a little later. Your pantry is filled with them. This is what it's like for these people. They would ooze their slime into the kneading troughs or maybe relieve themselves in them as they sat croaking there. The Egyptian culture was known especially for its exceptional cleanliness. Such a plague would be loathsome and revolting to them as just about anything that we could envision in our own clean society today. 
Just imagine the thought of being plagued with such slimy, noisy creatures that were just small enough to get into absolutely everything and to be a hindrance to any sort of normal mobility. But they were also considered creatures which could not be killed because they were considered divine. Imagine trying to open a door or do whatever normal work you needed to do, right? You would fear that you might crush one of your little gods in the process. The very religion that they espoused would become as loathsome to them as the creatures themselves were. As the pulpit commentary wisely notes, their animal worship was thus proved absurd and ridiculous. They were obliged to respect the creatures which they hated to preserve the animals they would fain have swept from the face of the earth. Verse 4, And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and all your servants. Although it isn't explicitly stated here as it will be in later plagues, the words of verse 1 imply that the plague will only fall on the Egyptians. In verse 1, he said, let my people go that they may serve me. Now it's repeated that the frogs would come upon your people and on all your servants. An implicit distinction is being made. And so not only would the homes of all of the home life associated with the homes of the Egyptians be infested, but even the people themselves would be infested. The frogs would be so numerous that as the people slept, they would crawl right up on them, maybe stopping on an arm or a cheek for a little rest. As they took their baths, the frogs would join in for a swim. As they ate their food, the frogs would be there ready to crawl into the plate or maybe into the cup. The Lord has taken this minute-sized creature and turned it into a giant-sized problem. Adam Clark notes that in the present instance, he shows the greatness of his power by making an animal devoid of every evil quality the means of a terrible affliction to his enemies. The frogs would have become offensive to the eyes, harsh on the ears, grating to the weary mind, and repulsive to the touch as they brushed against them, stepped on them, or had them hopping around on them in the dark of the night. A little rest and a little ease as I lay me down, but it never comes, I fear, rolling over on my bed. If I do, I may squash a god. Oh, how heaven would frown. All these terrible thoughts keep running through my head. What can I do? Nature has taken a stand against me. The very things I worship have become my enemy. If there were but one god, the creator of all, then I wouldn't have to serve the creation. Wouldn't that be nice? On such a marvelous god, surely I would call. It would be great, because after these frogs will come the lice. Oh, no. Our second thought today, stretch out your hand with your rod. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, then the Lord spoke to Moses. What is unstated but implied in this verse, in verse 5, is that Pharaoh declined the merciful offer of Jehovah. He may not have believed him at all, or he may have actually believed him, but misjudged the scope of the plague. No matter what is true, Jehovah now speaks to Moses once again. The words will contain the divine direction to strike the mighty land of Egypt with a sorrowful plague for a second time. Verse 5 continues, say to Aaron. In Exodus 4, verse 16, the Lord said this to Moses about Aaron. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. As has already happened, and as will continue to occur, God speaks to Moses words which are to be relayed on to Aaron. He is the spokesman, but he is also the one who is often tasked with assuming the action to be taken as well. Such is the case with the second plague. Verse 5 continues. Stretch out your rod with your, your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. 
The same bodies of water are mentioned here that are mentioned in Exodus 7, 19, the streams, rivers, and ponds. And if you remember, I gave a very detailed description of why I was giving that detailed description. And then I said, if you want to know why I did this, you'll have to wait for another sermon. Well, we're here now. There is one difference between that description and this description here. In verse 719, it also included mikveh, or pools, which were noted as probably man-made and used for storing water. Thus, we have an amazing confirmation of the surety of the truth of this passage. The one place the tadpoles would not flourish is not mentioned. These cisterns would have been kept clean for healthy drinking water, and so frogs spawn in tadpoles wouldn't find them suitable habitats. And so when the Lord directs the rod to be stretched out over the waters, the mikveh are left out of the description. Then I have to tell you, even the scholars and commentators that I read for this particular sermon missed this point, showing that it is something that is not readily noticeable. But once it's seen, it is a sure sign of the truth of the account. And my question is, how can it be that people so quickly dismiss the word of God? It's an inexhaustible source of wisdom and a reliable witness to what it puts forth. And yet so many people just ignore it without giving its due consideration. The mikveh aside, though, all of the naturally flowing waters of Egypt will now bring forth frogs. But the miracle isn't the frogs so much as the timing of their coming. The frogs are a natural result of the first plague, and they were sure to come. But the timing of them is coming right as the word of the Lord directs Moses to have Aaron speak and act. This is the marvel of what has come about. It is natural enough to further harden Pharaoh's heart, but it's also unusual enough to warn him that the divine hand is certainly behind the occurrence. He will see enough to understand, but he will not understand enough in order to act. Verse 6. Now, before I read verse 6, I want to tell you something, is that when I gave the uh, sermon on the plague of blood, the river turning to blood, I waved a, a cane over you all. And one of the guys emailed me the next day. He was watching this online. And he said, Charlie, when you did that, the cup that I was drinking turned to blood. He says, you've got to be careful with that rod. So I want to let you know right now that if any frogs appear, it's not my fault, all right? Verse 6, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, all right? As instructed, Aaron complied. The hand holds the rod. And the rod symbolizes the power of God with which to effect the miracle. At the stretching forth of the rod, the frogs heed the divine call and move to this inner urge instilled by their creator. It beckons them to the great display which they have been designed for and destined to participate in. Verse 6 continues, And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. It's funny, you know, I've noticed something. Every time I watch something on the Exodus account, People who don't believe the Bible never, never argued that these plagues didn't happen. I've never seen it. Instead, they always try to find ways of explaining them from a natural rather than a divine perspective. And by doing this, they show that they implicitly believe the story to be credible, at least from a historical perspective. But even if there is someone who was to say that this simply never occurred, all they need to do is look elsewhere in history to show that it very well could have. The pulpit commentary provides us with this record from the past. In Paeonia and Dardania, says Phonius, a disciple of Aristotle, there appeared once suddenly such a number of frogs that they filled the houses and the streets. Therefore, as killing them or shutting the doors was of no avail, 
as even the vessels of, were full of them, the water infected and all food uneatable, as they could scarcely set their foot upon the ground without treading upon heaps of them, and as they were vexed by the smell of the great numbers which died, they fled from that region altogether. It sounds exactly like the biblical account, and yet that's extra-biblical recorded history. So we have this extra-biblical account, which shows us the same type of occurrence has happened in the past. The difference is that the biblical account presupposes that this is an act of God, and that it is directed by him to meet his purposes at the exact moment that he proclaims that it will occur. I can't wait for dinner, and for a moment these frogs to forget. I wonder what the wife has prepared for me to eat. Before I sit down, I better wash my hands and then check that there aren't any frogs in my seat. What is that you cooked, my dear? It sure smells nice. How did you fare while cooking with all the frogs around? Mmm, that's yummy. Just the right amount of spice. I just wish we could get some peace from that horrid croaking sound. These bones sure are little, but tasty as the meat. Wait, this can't be. Did you cook us frogs too? Now we'll never get to heaven in paradise so sweet. My dear, what is this thing that you did to me do? You have cooked our God. No heavenly streets will we trod. Our third thought today, false signs and lying wonders. Verse 7. Verse 7 begins with, And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. This verse actually tickles me every time I read it because the full force of the plague has not yet arrived and Pharaoh didn't see all that was coming in the hours ahead. But in order to demonstrate that this wasn't beyond their capabilities, the magicians of Egypt brought up frogs as well, thus only exacerbating the scope of the dilemma that they would face. What they probably did, though, was something similar to the rabbit trick, you know, that the magicians do today. They were able to make the frogs appear supposedly at will and thus demonstrate that they were effective workers on behalf of Egypt's gods. However, any decent magician can not only make rabbits appear, they can do what? they can make them disappear. But the magicians of Egypt could not undo the great plague of the Lord. Thus, even though they could supposedly replicate the miracle on a smaller scale, they had no ability to undo the work which he had wrought. For a second time, though, their actions are enough to get Pharaoh to consider that Jehovah was like one of his own false gods. For him, it will be a stinky and a cumbersome lesson that he will have to endure for a season but it will be a lesson that he will also fail to take to heart. This second plague and its results are not unlike at all what is noted in Revelation. In the 16th chapter of Revelation, we read this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which which to go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. The frogs of the magicians of Egypt became a false sign and a lying wonder to Pharaoh. In the same way, there will be false signs and lying wonders which will be accomplished by the unclean spirits that appear like frogs in the end times. It should be noted here that this last sign or wonder accomplished by the Lord through Moses and Aaron is the last one which can be copied by the magicians of Pharaoh. Thus, there was the rod which became a serpent, there was the water which turned to blood, and there are the frogs which were brought forth. Just as there were three unholy replicas of the Lord's work, there will also be three unclean spirits which come forth in the end times. 
Three were sufficient to harden Pharaoh's heart, just enough to keep him on his wayward course, and three will be sufficient to work their evil in bringing about the final great battle in the end times. If you're like me, you probably feel that those end times are just around the corner. All of the signs of the end are here. The world is turned from the true message of God, and even his church has gone far, far off course. The word of God is no longer held in high esteem, and the world is a cesspool of that which is vile. Jesus is probably coming soon, and when he does, he will only be coming for those who have received him as their Savior. For those left behind, a time of terrible trial, pictured by these plagues of Egypt, will come on a global scale. It's my hope that you'll be on that heavenly train out of here when he comes for us. In order to do so, let me tell you what you need to know. The Bible says that we have a problem which keeps us from a fellowship and a right relationship with God, and that is sin. We all have it in us, every one of us, and we cannot take care of that problem ourselves. We can be good for a short season, but the problem remains an infection in us, and it is an eternally separating infection. God is out in his infinite realm, and we're stuck in the finite mortal realm, and we're going forward in time. We can't go back and undo the sins that we've already committed, and we are eternally separated from him. But Jesus Christ came out of that infinite realm, and he put on garments of flesh, and he lived the perfect life that you and I simply cannot live. And then he gave that life up in exchange for your sins and for mine. For anybody that is willing to say, you know what, I'm not going to follow this world anymore, and I'm not going to go down that road that the rest of the world has decided to take. And they'll be covered in the blood of Christ when they make that decision, and he will forgive them of their sins. And he or she will walk on streets of glory for all eternity. But it cannot happen unless they yield themselves to the Lord and call on him to be their savior. So if you've never done that today, I would ask that you would do so. I have a closing verse to you today. It's also from Deuteronomy. It's uh, Deuteronomy 28. It's verses 1, 2, and 5. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then down in verse 5, it says, Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. So God's given them the choice right in his words, and they had the availability of seeing it proven true right in their own, their own eyes while they were in the land of Egypt. And then only those two other times is this one particular word used anywhere in the Bible, mishoret, which is the kneading trough. And I think God did that for this reason alone, is to simply show us that we have choices. Our eyes see, our minds understand, and then we have choices to make. And that's why he only used this particular word only those four times in the Bible. Israel failed to pay heed, and they were exiled. And then God in his mercy brought them back a second time, and they failed to pay heed. And their exile went on a lot longer the second time. And now they're back in the land, and God is getting ready to return his son to them. But it's going to go through a terrible, terrible time of trial before that happens. God, his word is so perfectly pure that he gives us these little patterns and simple words that you would never even consider. I just can't believe it. It's so detailed, and it's so beautiful, and it's so precious. Next week is Exodus 8, 8 through 15, the Plague of Frogs, part 2. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. And the Lord spoke to Moses this word, 
go to Pharaoh and say to him with my authority, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs unless you do as I have to you told. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, as you will see, into your bedroom and on your bed. Yes, they will be there when you try to lay your head into the houses of your servants, as I have said, even on your people, they won't stop into your ovens where you bake your bread and into your kneading bowls, they will hop. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on your servants too. Then the Lord spoke to Moses this word, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, as you have heard, over the rivers and over the ponds throughout the land. And cause frogs to come up on Egypt the land. Do this now, just as I command. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered Egypt the land. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. And it was through these accomplishments and by these lying wonders that his heart was tripped. Surely God looks upon each heart, knowing whether it will be soft or not. He knows which will desire a new start. And for that one, he has reserved a heavenly spot. The choice is up to each one of us and God will lead the heart as it is so disposed. He will lead it to life in Jesus or away from it if that heart is hard and closed. So let your heart be open and tender to his call. Allow him in and let him work salvation in you. And upon you his grace and mercy shall fall. What a God, what a friend, ever faithful and true. We praise you, O Lord our God. Our hearts sing joyous hallelujahs to you. And they shall forevermore as we trod in your glorious light when behold you make all things new. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons that you give us in the uh, these sermons about Pharaoh. He's, he's a stubborn guy, but most of us are as well in some way or another. And I would ask that you would continue to soften our hearts as we grow, as we grow in your word, as we, we grow in fellowship with other Christians and with the people of the world around us, that we can be firm in your word, but at the same time, yielding our hearts to your word and living our lives appropriate to what you would have us do. Lord, we do pray for Elaine, who's sick today, and for Tom Alley, that he's get over his sickness, and uh, pray for the hearts that are troubled today because of missing family members or trials or troubles that we're facing at home. Lord, you know these things, and I'd ask that you search us out and just uh, give us the comfort and the peace which passes all understanding that we so desperately need in this world, which is going crazy right before our eyes. We thank you for the better hope that we have and the heavenly hope because of the work of Jesus. And we thank you for that work, and we thank you in his name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly out of God's superior word. We get it from chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And there Paul wrote us these words. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have said this. He would have given a blessing over it as well. He would, would have said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you for the people that come here, and thank you for those that tell others about it. It means so, so much to me that we have this this place where we can meet, where we can fellowship, and we can come and see each other and share in each other's lives and difficulties and happinesses, and uh, it's just so wonderful. The fellowship of the believer. Thank you for it. And we long for the day when we'll experience it in its fullness when you come for us and we can see each other without the stain of sin. What a great day that will be. Hallelujah to Jesus for allowing that to happen. We love you and we praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.